Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. If you have logged on if you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Now, following the show, you can continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and on my Facebook page. In fact, like my Facebook page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Well, tonight's show is I think a wonderful follow-up to my show last week with Anita Paul, the author's midwife. Anita Paul shared wonderful tips on writing and getting your book published. And I'm so happy to welcome author, book publisher, and family historian Denise Griggs as she describes the research process she went through to find documents to prove and are disproportionate the oral family history given by her grandfather, Wilbert Hunt, and his sister, Julia Hunt Richardson. This research is published in a book entitled A Mulatto Slave, The Events in the Life of Peter Hunt from 1844 to 1915. Ms. Griggs is a native of California, whose parental ancestry is from Mississippi and Arkansas. She has written several books, one of which I just mentioned, A Mulatto Slave, a comical book, Look What Shook from the Family Tree, and a children's beginning genealogy pamphlet, I Know Who I Am on the Family Tree. Through her research, she has traced her mother's family from Mississippi to County Tipperary, Ireland. Her forefathers were in the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Another one of her maternal ancestors 
was a former slave who joined the United States colored troops during the Civil War in 1864 and mustered out from the 6th Heavy Artillery serving in 1866. He was a son of a slave owner with one of his slaves. So let me give a warm welcome to Denise Griggs. Denise, welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Thank you, Bernice. I'm very honored to do this. Well, I'm honored to have you. So let's begin at the beginning. So why did you (laughs) decide to write this book? Well, it first began when I asked my uh, great aunt, Aunt Julie, who's the picture of that white man on your wall? And she said, baby, that was no white man. That was great Uncle Peter. And I was like, what do you mean he's not white? So it went on. She told me he was a slave. I was like, a slave? And uh, she began to tell me just what she knew about his life. And I promised her that whatever I found out, I would call her back and tell her about it because not very many family members knew. So it ended up that Peter was the catalyst for me to learn more about my family, their faith and determination to make it in that hostile environment that they lived in. So that's what made me decide to write the book. So it was a picture on a wall. Yes. So, okay, and so let's talk, because I know there's a part in here where there was some oral history. So Mm -hmm. let's first examine why is it important to consider oral history as a first step in the genealogical research process? Because the oral history, it's a pathway and a beginning point. You can't just say, well, I'm of African descent, I'm going to jump right in the middle of Africa and find out, or I'm going to track down this Native American and find out. You have to start with something. So it's a guide to locate and uncover the documents as well as the truth of your family's stories. Because people see and hear and believe the same things differently. I have a twin sister, and we will just swear, no, it happened this way, no, it happened this way, no, it didn't happen, it didn't happen this way. So we finally came to understand, wait a minute, we have two different versions of the same event, and they're not lies, they're just different versions, different perspectives of the same event. So as you begin to write down the event, just write it free flow what, any family member tells you because they're going to have a different perspective on that same happening, that same story. So mm-hmm. that's why it's so important to start with the oral history first. It gives you somewhere to start looking. Okay, so that that mm-hmm. served kind of as your guiding point right, to get right. started. So mm-hmm. uh, when and who started you on your journey to understand or to obtain the oral history of your ancestor, Peter Hunt? Well, with Peter, it was Aunt Julie. The information we had prior to meeting Aunt Julie was her brother, which was my grandfather. And he he had so many stories and tales. And, you know, sometimes my grandmother would just walk by and shake in her head. But, you know, we still hung on to it because there had to be something in that story and my dad was our storyteller, so I was always intrigued by the stories and what they said and the the um, the way they described it. I wanted to know who, what, why, when, and where. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Grandpa was initially the first one, but Grandpa didn't know very much about Peter Hunt. Mm-hmm. So with Aunt Julie being the youngest and taking care of her mother, who lived to be like 94, 
she had that information. And about Peter, so when she said he fought in a great war, I had no idea which war it was. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, maybe if I start with the 1900 census, I may find him. I could find all the other relatives, but I didn't know about Peter, you mm-hmm. know, on the census record. So I started with 1900, found him, went forward to 1910, went back to 1880 and 1870, so I could at least locate him, see who was in the family. How old was he? What did he say he was doing? Where does it ever say he was a tanner or a weaver? Mm-hmm. So I would call my great aunt and I would tell her. And so for that one solid year from 1977, November, to December of 98, I was calling her constantly and telling her. And unfortunately, she died in 1998. But mm-hmm. at least I, at least she finally knew the things that her mother told her were true. Uh, the people she didn't know about now, she knew about them. Or she could say, you know, I heard we were related to some Hammonds, or I heard we were related to the Shavers, or, you know, things like that. So it made sense for her as well. So really what you were doing is listening to what she had to say, then mm-hmm. going out and seeking the facts to support yes. what she had to say, and then going back and telling her or verifying mm-hmm. that information with her. Right. And sometimes it was new information for her. But when I went online, I went straight to Mississippi to Franklin and the Mitt counties and ran across a lady looking for the descendants of slaves. Mm-hmm. And it was Sandra Craighead from Ohio, and she was writing a book, she said, on that. And she said every time she researched her ancestors and other people, Peter Hunt's name kept popping up. So I answered her query. I was, you know, writing everywhere. But I answered her query, and she just literally screamed through the email, I have information on him. And so I ran out, and at that time they had uh, long-distance cards. I bought five of them, and we talked them up. And she had his death certificate. She had a couple of pages from his pension file. Um, she had this other information about him that he voted in 1867. And I, oh my goodness, and I told her, I said, I'm going to give you uh, a reward for this. Because she said she was going to send me copies. And she said, No, I don't need money. I said, I'm not going to send you money. She said, What are you going to send me? I said, A picture of Peter Hunt. And she just screamed <laughs> that wow. she had been check- checking out this man and had no idea. What he looked like, but she knew he was the slave owner's son, and because uh, it was in his pension files, and so she sent me the paperwork, and I sent her the picture. <laughs> well, first of all, for those of you who don't know, if you've seen the picture, it is posted in the in the promotional materials, and that's Peter Hunt. So let's go back and just retrace and summarize what has happened. Mm-hmm. You saw a picture on the wall. And you inquired, who is that white man on the wall? And you found out that this was a family member. Mm -hmm. You then went to your grandfather to Mm -hmm. to ask him questions. Mm -hmm. And later, was this your grandfather's sister that you went to? So you went to your grandfather's sister. And what Mm -hmm. was the relationship between Peter Hunt and your grandfather's sister? He was their great uncle. He was uh, grandpa, grandpa. Yes, Grandpa and Aunt Julie's mother, her name was Eula, and Eula was the daughter of Peter's sister. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you went through this process beginning mm-hmm. in 1977. And when 19- I first saw it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To 1998. Yes. I first mm-hmm. saw the picture in 1977. And, you know, being kind of young, you weren't supposed to ask questions of the old folks. But then by 1997, I thought, well, if I don't ask, I'm never going to find out. <laughs> So, and I was much older, so she felt a little more free to talk to me. By that time, my grandfather was deceased, so she and I had this really good conversation, and no one else seemed to want to know about him. So Mm -hmm. she just thought it was so important to have his picture on the wall and to hold on to what her mother told her. Mm -hmm. Because she had no idea which war he was in, just that he was in a great war. Well, at the time, neither one of us knew they called the Civil War the Great War. It was Sandra Craighead who told me which war it was. Yes, but your but your aunt told you he was in the mm-hmm. Great War. She had that yes. as part of the oral history. But yes. did she have any documents to prove this? Oh, no, nothing. Just Okay, picture. so just the picture and just the oral history. Yes. But it was wonderful that you had her there to yes. at least, you know, explain to you who was on the wall. Right. Yes. Now She was I, the I, last sibling to die as well, so I never would have found out. <laughs> oh, wow. That mm-hmm. is something else. So yes. let, let's talk about uh, the documents for a while. So mm-hmm. you, you just tell us what, what was in the documents, what did you find? In the pension file, it showed that his half-brother, which was the son of the slave owner, he he came forward um, shortly before he died, and he verified that Peter's mother was indeed his father's slave and that Peter was born in 1844 over in Amit County. So I thought that was pretty good. And then there were witnesses who testified to Peter's disability from the war and as it turned out, I later discovered that was his brother-in-law. Because you know, you still have to go back and re- reread your documents Absolutely. and just reread them. If you yes. don't know who they are at first, just wait a while. That name will pop up again and again mm-hmm. and again. Mm-hmm. And the extension oh. files are such valuable. I mean, they have such valuable documentation in there. Oh, they do. Yeah. I mean, in order to get the – it was kind of hard for them to get the pension, but at least um, – they have to give all of this information, where they were born, whose plantation they were from. And he does say that he was from the Hunt Plantation. And uh, he mm-hmm. does say who his mother told him his father was mm-hmm. and um, and who he married and um, when he married. They had to prove uh, when they got married. And then it, it shows that he married two other times and what he thought about it. <laughs> he didn't say married then. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you kind of get the feel for what their, what type of personality they have by what they say or what others say about them. Right. Well, we have a few comments coming out of the chat. One said that I love that she asked about who was that man on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I wonder how many people walk into would walk into a home and see a picture that they've always seen but never say anything. And, so, and apparently they didn't. <laughs> you mean are you the first to ask the question? I believe so. My cousins down there they lived down there and they said they just knew the picture was on their grandmother's wall, but they just never got into it. 
And that's the reason I inherited the picture. The picture's in its original frame with the original nails that hung up on the wall. Because after Aunt Julie died, her son Willie told me, he says, Mama left you something. And I said, she did. What would she leave me? And he said, go in the room and look. And when I walked in there, there was the picture. Just waiting for me to bring it with me. Wow. So I brought it back from Mississippi. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. when when was Peter born? 1844. Okay, and what what time period do you think he took that picture? Probably about 1880. The picture is at least 130 years old. Oh, wow. It's, it's about three and a half feet by two feet. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, and it's really old. <laughs> it's really so I have, old. I have it covered up because I brought it from Mississippi here, and with the uh, time change and, you know, the, as the uh, weather I didn't want to ruin it, have it come out here and just totally fade away or anything. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. gee. Oh, I, I know <laughs> what it's like to have an old picture because I, I, I have one of those old pictures over 100 years old that mm-hmm. I just had restored, and I'm very excited about it. So oh. let's talk about some of the other documents that you found. So you found the pension record, and mm-hmm. the pension record stated who his father was and that he was yes. a slave and what plantation and what have you. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. else did you find in your documentation? Uh, the fact that his disability was from the measles. When he joined the color troop, uh, one month later he caught the measles. A lot, over 60, say about 70,000 African Americans died in the uh, Civil War, men. But so many of them died from disease. And a lot of people were dropping dead in these camps that I understand were quite filthy, and he survived. And Mm -hmm. so his disability, the measles settled in his lungs, or the effects of the measles settled in his lungs that kept him coughing all the time, but he was still able to stay into the service. Mm -hmm. And so there are doctor records in there where they examined him. There's a record in there where it describes his entry in there and that he was almost six feet tall, and then it says uh, he could readily pass for a white man. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, what, are they narking on him? Are they trying to say, watch this guy, or what are they trying to say? Mm-hmm. So well, it sounded like he was a very, yeah, he sounded like he's a very handsome young man. Even in his older picture, he's a handsome man. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Well, we're going to take a break, come back, because we want to talk a little bit more about those documents. And okay. then And then talk about which, the process you went through just to get the book written. Okay. All righty. Now, I am getting ready to play a little music so we can take a break. Okay.
welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Well, you have been listening to Denise Griggs, author and book publisher of A Mulatto Slave, The Events in the Life of Peter Hunt from 1844 to 1915. Now, Denise, there's a question coming out of the chat right now, and they would like to know how did you preserve the picture being in its original frame? Well, actually, I have it wrapped in a sheet in a cool, dark place in the closet <laughs> because I didn't want to put it out without first consulting with someone. Yeah. Um, I, but, you know, I used to take it with me to genealogy seminars whenever I taught African-American genealogy, and everyone would say, put that out, put that away, don't bring that out. And I was like, but why? I want to show everybody what I have. <laughs> So I eventually just covered it and put it away because I do want to make sure that it's, you know, any restoration that it's done correctly and finding the right person to do it. Right. Well, have you made a copy of the original image? No, I just took some pictures of it, and that's actually the picture that's on the book is Uh the picture that I took of the actual picture and cropped it. Right, and so Mm -hmm. those of you who have a chance, when you have a chance to go back and look at the promo, you'll be able to see what Peter Hunt looked like. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk talk a little bit more about some of the documents. What other documentation did you find on your family or on Peter Hunt? Well, I found that he was the one who took each of his uh, nieces and his sisters to get married. He was one of the ones who was kind of like the witness for lack of not no not having it in front of me, where it was always like two people who said who these people are, that they placed the bond, and it was him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, another thing that I have of his. Um, the census records, of course, from 1870 to 1910. Mm-hmm. I also have the inscription uh, where he's listed on the wall of the African-American Civil War Memorial. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the description of his service record in the United States colored troops. He was in the heavy artillery of the six out of Natchez. Okay, so let's talk a little. We're going to go back to the documents, but I want to talk to you just about uh, this the book that you wrote. Mm-hmm. And um, who who were you targeting when you when you wrote your book? I was actually targeting ninth graders. Like middle school, you know, you want to um, ease them into slavery without making them feel bad about themselves. I know when I was growing up in the 60s, 50s and the 60s, you know, whatever they had to say about slaves wasn't good. So Mm -hmm. you didn't want to be associated or I didn't know enough, you know, to to be ashamed about it, but I just knew there was something. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think rather than saying, here, read Brooks or something, salacious like that, ease them into it at first. I let my nephews and my niece read it. And one told me, I think I'm too young for this. And I said, fine. He was in the sixth grade. And then the other one, he got a little angry, but then that gave us a chance to talk about it. He said, I didn't like how they did my grandmother, my great-great-grandmother. And I said, well, 
you know, we have to watch and see what time it was, but apparently she survived. We're here. She did it for us. Mhm, mhm. So whatever she had to do. Right. So it was a book that could open up that dialogue. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So and so I, nothing in it is salacious or horrendous. It's it's enough to make them think. It's like you know when somebody when your parents tell you don't get in that car and someone says get in my car you stop and think well you know let's see maybe I shouldn't get in that car. <laughs> right. So it's to make them think through and see that things aren't always what they seem to be or what they're said to be. There's mm-hmm. another side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I noticed that you wrote the book in a very interesting style. It was the style of the Writers Federal Project, the WPA style of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Why yes. did you decide to choose this style to write your book? Well, I knew I wanted to write something. I had all this information that I really needed to put together. And I was up late one night just reading some of the uh, stories from the narratives, you know, always hoping I'd run into a relative, and, uh, you know, I began to see a pattern of behavior where they felt a little, it sounded like they were a little cagey, maybe this person is trying to enslave me again, or they would say, oh, you know, Master was good to me, we had plenty to eat and plenty of clothes, you know, and it's just kind of like, well, wait a minute, you are in southern, southern the United States, I don't think you got treated that good, but then when I saw where one transcriber speaking to a very eloquent black man, and she noted it in her records that he, his speech was impeccable, she wanted him to speak like a slave. Or like he was talking to another one, and, you know, it kind of riled my feathers a little bit. And I thought, oh, she, well, too bad Peter died before all this. And, you know, the more I thought about it, and it's like, well, why don't I interview Peter? Why don't I, you know, uh, tell his story? But I was trying to tell it in second person, third person, and I'm telling you, it's clear as day. I just happened to look up, and I saw this picture of my grandfather with his little cagey look. And I was like, okay, old man, what are you trying to tell me? And I just went back to writing, and I stopped for a second, and I just could hear it in my head just as clear, let him speak. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started writing. As soon as I changed it to first person, it just flowed. It flowed, mm-hmm. and I was done with it within a week when I'd been writing on it for months and months and months and months. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do it that way and let yeah. him speak eloquently as opposed to talking like a slave and, oh, master beat me and, you know, this stuff like that and it was good, it was this, and it was, you know. So I wanted him to talk, speaking eloquently and telling his life story, good and bad. Well, why don't you give us an example of, read a few excerpts from your book to give us an idea of how you use the slave narrative format to develop mm-hmm. your story or to, to let us hear Peter's voice. Okay. Well, most of the slave uh, transcribers, they always wanted to know where were you born, whose plantation, what was your situation at the time during slavery. They would describe the color of their skin and their hair, and they would want to know about some event or something like that. So that's really how I started out with Peter. Well, let's hear it. Let us hear how it sounds. Uh, Starting with Chapter 1, it says, So, you want to know all about the events in my lifetime, but especially when I was a slave? Well, I am an old man now, and I will tell you as best as I can recall. My name is Peter Hunt, and I was born near Liberty, Mississippi, 
on a little plantation just 17 years before the start of the Civil War. Liberty was a green and beautiful town over in a mid-county down in southern Mississippi. As you probably know, it is just north of the Louisiana border parishes of East and West Feliciana. Liberty is a beautiful word that means freedom, the ability to make choices for oneself, but I, I was not able to because I was a slave, an American slave. Slaves could not make choices or decisions for themselves because other people owned them as though they were horses or mules. Most slaves were no different from any other animals on the farm. We were fed, watered, sheltered in the most basic manner, and had to submit to hard labor all day long for the profit and benefit of someone else. So he's telling her all in that, uh, in those particular paragraphs, his name, um, where he lived at, how long before the start of the Civil War, or how near to the Civil War, uh, mm-hmm. his his location and everything else. Mm-hmm. So um, he goes on to say, chattel they called us, which meant that at any time they could purchase, sell, and deed us, just like property, or bound us over to someone else as a gift or in a will. Mm-hmm. At all times, a slave's movement and actions were controlled mainly by white folks. Mm-hmm. And then he he goes on to tell that he was mulatto. He says, as you can see, I look like a white man because I am a mulatto. And that uh, he explains mulattoes, what it means, and that his mother was also a mulatto too. Mm-hmm. That he knew, you know, he knew he his father was a white man, but he wouldn't dare ask because that would be mm-hmm. a beating he wouldn't soon forget. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one of the one of the chatters is saying, "Well, you're putting it in Peter's voice, but your interpretation of how you think his voice is." Mm-hmm. 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 Well, Peter was kind of a little gross. Um, he said he loved his mother. He obviously loved his mother. He wouldn't leave her for nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wanted to protect her because his stepfather, which was an African named Josh, was no longer in the picture. So Peter wouldn't leave. And uh, he got married. He loved his first wife and his children. But uh, the next woman... He put both of them out. He said one wouldn't come in and cook for him, so he put her out. Another one, he just got rid of her. She's too wild. <laughs> so she, okay, nobody where would. Did you, where did you find that information? In his pension papers. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make that up. <laughs> okay. And he he couldn't have been too different than his father, even though. You know, he couldn't be that way with his father. The more I found out about his father, oh, man, that guy was a character. Mm-hmm. And so were one or two of his sons. <laughs> yeah. Well, it looks, like, mm-hmm. it looks like we have a question coming in, so I am going to open up the line for okay. uh, someone who's calling in, what, area code 601. Uh, it's not live yet. Okay, 601, do you have a question or a comment? Hello? Yes. Yes, yes. 601, this is Sherry Richardson-Brown. I'm the cousin of Denise, and I wanted to say hello, Denise, and Hi, cousin. know that we're behind you. Hi, cousin. How are you? <laughs> Fine. Great. Just okay. wanted to let her know that I was listening in. Okay. Yes. Thank you for calling in. And um, her? Yeah, I, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was just saying, I noticed uh, yeah, somebody, there's a, a comment coming out that he really told all of his business in those pitching papers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did, because he wanted that picture and he meant it. But uh, my cousin Sherry, it was her grandmother that was my Aunt Julia. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So okay. they called her Mama Julia. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I noticed that you have a bill of sale in your book. So mm-hmm. please tell us about this bill and how this fit into writing your book. Well, I wanted uh, people to see that uh, Captain Hunt, that's what they called him, um, he was buying and purchasing slaves. And that was one of the records that wasn't burned after the Civil War. His son even told it in the pension papers that his father burned all the records and their Bible records about his slaves and everything. And... Um, I wanted them to see, especially the children, that a teenage girl that was 15, she was sold for uh, $450. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find her anymore in his records. And, you know, you have to kind of let them know. I suspect by then, by age 15, either she was pregnant or she was going to be pregnant because, you know, to have a baby was to have more money and another uh, ranch hand, so to speak, or another slave, so to speak. So... I wanted to make sure that I had it in there. There are a lot of other records and conveyance in land records that um, slaves were sold and mentioned in the land records as property. Mm-hmm. So, But this particular one, I decided not to use the conveyance record, but to show just an actual bill of sale that how easy for a teenager to be sold at that time. Right. Or a black, right. A black teenager. Uh-huh. Right, and then this is another uh, teaching point in your book right. for the young right. people who are reading it so that they can mm-hmm. at least see uh, the bill of sale. Now, you also included a partial will from 1822 mm-hmm. in your book. Now, tell us mm-hmm. about this will and how does that relate to your family history? Well, it relates because the will was Captain Hunt's father, and his name, even though it looks like Fitzmaurice, it was pronounced Fitzmaurice Hunt. And he's one who came to America from uh, Tipperary County, Ireland, mm-hmm. just before the American Revolution. And so Fitz died September 9, 1822. And his son filed the will where he gives his grandchildren each a slave. And I find it amazing that he didn't even have the names accurate. He was like Lil or Till or Matilda, you mm-hmm. know, but he gave them to his sons. And the will further states that, uh, like $200 went to each daughter, but that the bulk of the estate was left to his one son, Captain Hunt. His real name was Henry Hunt. Might as well just put it out there. But mm-hmm. the bulk of the estate went to him because even though Fitz died in 1822, I also have a, a mortgage where Captain Hunt in 1825 uh, borrowed about $3,000 and put all these slaves up for mortgage. But mm-hmm. in that particular one, he had to name the slave, where, who he bought the slave from, the name of the person as well as the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, even in that will, that is how I found a man named Smart, who was the Indian, whose son had to change his name in order to marry one of Hunt's slaves. That was in the family, but they had it all confused as to who it was. So mm-hmm. that helped me to sort it out. Mm-hmm. Once I found that particular document, right. 
So really what you're putting together, and, and for, for those who are, who are in the chat room and, and on the phone, you know, I've had several shows, and one of them was on property rights uh, with right. a legal genealogist. And mm-hmm. we talked about how at that time the enslaved were property. And yes. so they could do whatever they wanted to do with that property, and that's exactly what you're saying. But you do right. have the documentation to show mm-hmm. Peter Hunt's, this is his father or grandfather? Both his father and grandfather and, in the and will. And grandfather in the will. Mm-hmm. Wow, yes. this, this is this is quite interesting. <laughs> now, now I noticed, and and I'm just pretty much laying out your book for people to mm-hmm. to know what how you laid it out. But I noticed that from 1844 to 1915, you did include a historical timeline, uh, beginning with I guess Peter's birth pre Civil War and ending in 1915. So yes. how impo- how significant is it for people to understand the his- historical context uh, in which their ancestors lived? Well, it's very important. I don't think most people knew that Peter knew how to read. But, like, between those time periods, his his life, I mean, a lot of events occurred that impact both American and women world history. Not only was it slavery, there was the discovery of gold in 1849. That brought people from all over the world to America, a lot of other people's ancestors. Uh, the election as well as the assassination of uh, President Lincoln voting rights and citizenship for blacks, inventions of every sort, the telephone, phonographs, electric light, Wright Brothers airplane, Einstein's relativity, and the sinking of the Titanic. How great is that? <laughs> I don't know that any of us could really go back and take a look over our lifetimes like right now and see as many things that impacted history, not only in America but around the world. Then you look and see how the progression of these events in their lives how they contributed to history. They weren't just slaves working in the cotton fields, being beaten all the time or sold all the time, kind of like how I heard it when we was coming up. But they had to find out ways to survive all these troubling times with all the law stacked against them, as well as the plan, the lynchings and murders in Jim Crow environment. They still participated in history. To me, once I began to research this and see the things that they did, even as a tanner and as a weaver and researching those uh, jobs, they helped our ancestors help drive the economies of the world. Mm-hmm. How would so much cotton have gotten to the Eastern and European markets without them? How would the states come into being without the sacrifice and subjugation? Sure, it was forced labor, but all these ensnared Africans brought their own history of cultivation agriculture, and medicinal knowledge with them, mm-hmm. and their own civilization, too. They knew about rice, okra, roots for medicines, and colors, fabric colors, and much, much more. So I think that all children need to know that. What happened in that time period? What has happened in their time period? They also need to know that there were blacks inventing things out of necessity during the Civil War. No, they didn't get the rights to it. Their masters did. But even after slavery... Jan Matzlinger, uh, he invented that shoe-lasting machine where he could produce 400 shoes in one day instead of four pairs, you know, mm-hmm. or the real McCoy. That was Elijah McCoy, a black man. Mm-hmm. And there were so many, many more. I don't think any of them know that the first one of the first wooden golf tees was by a black man. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, the, the point, mm-hmm. though, and I, and I think this is a point that's well made, that when you describe Peter Hunt, you have to think about him in the context of everything right. that was going on We're around okay. him. That's right. he, he didn't live on this little island by himself. Nope. nope, and the slaves had a magnificent way of getting information out to one another. <laughs> so, sure, one read it or one overheard it, but they certainly passed it on. They passed it on. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, given that this is the 150th anniversary of the Man- Emancipation Proclamation, I also mm-hmm. noticed that you included the entire Emancipation Proclamation <laughs> in your book, <laughs> you know, as well as a Civil War recruitment poster of former slaves. So tell us, you know, why did you feel that it was important to include this in your book? I know a lot of other people haven't seen this. Growing up, I didn't see this. Never did. And then the the proclamation, it didn't include all of the states. It's just the 11 states that were in rebellion, as Lincoln put it. And look at them. South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Most of our African-American ancestors came from these places, Mm -hmm. whether they knew they were free or not. And so... Once I read it, I was kind of surprised. I thought it was he free to everybody everywhere. <laughs> and so I thought, well, if I don't know it, there's other people that don't know it, especially in my family. Not only am I trying to teach children, but also my family. Mm-hmm. Then we look at the Civil War recruitment poster. Frederick Douglass was responsible for that. He was a former slave. And another great historical figure that a lot of children do know about, but he went to President Lincoln and worried him so many times until he agreed to form the United States Color Troops. So the former slaves now have the opportunity to fight for their lives, to fight for their families and their own well-being by becoming soldiers. Mm-hmm. And Peter Hunt did exactly same, the exact same thing. So these two pieces are very important for us to know about. Absolutely. The poster mm-hmm. and the proclamation. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and I'm so glad that you included those documents in your book. Well, what other documentation have you found on on, on your family since writing the book? Well, with your help, I've, I always had it on me for like years, and it was where Peter Hunt purchased property, and then where his mother also had property, And you asked me on another interview, was it homesteaded? And I thought, well, I really don't know. And I just really thank you from the bottom of my heart for going over to NARA, the National Archives, and sending me photocopies. And I immediately recognized some of the witnesses. They were relatives and some I didn't know. And it's like, ah, another avenue to chase. (laughs) 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 And And so also and this is a biggie that just occurred in the last two weeks. For Christmas, my twin sister and I gave each other a DNA kit for Christmas. So mine is through one company and hers is through another. Well, she went through 23andMe and hers came back uh, 10 days later, two weeks later, and I'm still waiting for mine. But the DNA results proved my book because it shows the connection between the slave owner's descendants and our family. And I'm telling you, we just about fell over. (laughs) And it showed, which was so amazing, was that, sure, we had 50% of an African gene, say, 500 years ago, but we also had 40% of France, England, uh, and Ireland. 
I know the Hunt family started in France. I found it in Salt Lake City about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I went to another, there's another library down from the main one, and I found it. I just, oh, I just was amazed. And then they moved to England because one house, Earl of Oxford, his great-granddaughter married a Hunt. So there's the nobility coming in. And then they were banished to Ireland when these different wars happened and, and the king found out they were on the other side. So they got banished to Ireland where for a couple hundred years they remained until 300 took a ship over here to the Americas. But only three remained. The rest, the 297 went back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I found that out, and I just found it out by helping another lady. She originally told me we couldn't possibly be related because we were both looking for Fitzmaurice. And I said, well, yeah, we kind of are, and I'm African-American. I said, but, you know, his son fathered our family. Might as well just tell you. And But what you're looking for is right in front of you, right mm-hmm. there in Georgia. And she said, really? She emailed me back. She says, really? She said, well, you'll be interested in this man. And so when I emailed him, I said, where are you? I don't recognize your URL. And he said, I'm in Ireland. Cousin, I'm in Ireland. <laughs> oh, and so, so someone he took me. Yes. Yes, okay. ma'am. He wanted to know what happened to Fitzmaurice and his great-great-grandfather. After they know they landed in America, in Georgia, and but they never found out what happened to him. I said, I tell you what. I'll bring you up to date. And I told him, you know, I'm African-American, Indian, and, and whatever. And he wrote me back. He said, cousin, you will be my triracial cousin. You would be interested in knowing this about your family. And he took me all the way back to 800 A.D. Wow. I have the entire history of the Hunt family. Wow. And this started with the picture on the wall. The picture on the wall. Asking the question. That I built up my nerve to ask the question, not knowing if I was going to get shot down, slapped, or whatever. But I said, I didn't think she would do it. But I said, Ain't Julie, come on, come on, tell me, who's that guy on the wall? Who's that white man? And it's crazy because my Aunt Julie looks white. So here I'm talking to a lady that looks white, talking about who's the white man on the wall. Oh my goodness! Well, let's, <laughs> let's move. Let's move a little further because we're getting to a point now. I want to just talk to you about your book, writing your book. Now, mm-hmm. you self-published this book. Yes. How long did it take you to self-publish? And and then I understand that you 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 call yourself Glass Tree Books. Tell yes. us about that. Okay. Well. The first time I went to, um, I knew this guy from other genealogy seminars, but his name is Jim Rader. I'm always going to give him the credit. He was teaching a class on writing your family book through lulu.com. Now, you know, we're sitting there like, what is that? And he says, you know, you can order one book or you can order a thousand books. He said, you only order what you want. You don't have to make a great investment to write a book, publish it only to find out you have a mistake in it. And so he said, I can tell by the look on Denise's face, she is going home and doing that tonight. And I was like, you got that right. I wasn't so much thinking about Peter at the time, but just some other things that I also wanted to publish. And so I went to Lulu and was practicing on it. It allows you to correct your editing mistakes. Uh, It gives you an ISBN number so that you can sell it on the marketplace like Amazon.com and some others. 
And but I knew libraries and other people wouldn't take it if it was from Lulu. They said if they're the publisher, it's the Vanity Press. And I'm like, oh, okay. So as I began, it took like a year or so, and then I found out about Bowker.com, B-O-W-K-E-R, where you can order your own ISDN numbers. You can list yourself as the publisher. So trying to come up with the name and, you know, checking around to see if anybody else has a name, I said, well, what exactly am I writing? I'm writing to children, and I wanted to be so obvious what I'm writing about. You can read the title and see what I'm writing about as though looking through a glass. And I thought, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Books are made out of trees. So, okay, glasstreebooks.com. And that's how I came up with the name. (laughs) So you can, like I said, you can see the topics. You know what I'm talking about. But it's to help to assist parents mainly to teach their children not only their own family values but other values that are out there and how they relate to different parts of life, whether it's Christian or secular or whatever. So that's how I I ended up with that. Okay. Well, (laughs) if anyone would like to ask a question or make a comment, please feel free to call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. So while we're waiting to see if anyone is interested in calling, um, what recommendations would you give to anyone who's considering writing a book and also replicating the WPA style of writing? I would encourage them to do it. I mean, but you have to really try to understand the life and times of your ancestors. I mean, it took a lot of research to get the feel of Peter and his character by the things he said, did, in the time period in which he lived. And you have to really pay attention to that historical period, what happened before, what happened during, what happened after, and um, what led up to the events in your ancestors' life. How did you even get to where you are? I live in California, born and raised in California. Why was that happening? What occurred to cause this to happen? How, How did my mother get out here as a teenager? Okay, and so when you're looking at the realities of slave and slave owner, it was different then, and we cannot allow ourselves to interject our assumptions today on what we would or would not do in those situations. I I talk about a situation in the book about my great-great-grandmother, and she had children by him. So how did it occur? What happened? She could have said no, could she? She had a husband, he was African, but she was having this white man's kids. So, you know, knowing that she had to share, be shared by two different men. You know, one was married and one wasn't. Uh, he was, uh, the slave owner was married four times, had children by a bunch of different women. And so, you know, you have to kind of get the feel of what happened. I found out the slave owner, one of his sons, tried to kill him. After they arrested him, then he killed himself. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so what do you do with that? Right. So we have a lot of questions coming out of the chat. So I'm okay. just going to just share with you what, what questions are being asked. First of all, did you use Bakker or Lulu to publish your book? Um, I used Glassy Books to publish it. I used Bowker to buy the ISBN numbers Okay. so that I could say I'm the publisher. That way I have my book in several libraries now. Okay. And um, Lulu.com is great to practice on. Um, now they offer the ISBN numbers for free. They'll put you out there on Amazon.com and others. Um, they share a little bit in your royalties, not much. Uh, you get your books uh, 
a lot less. It just depends on what you put the price on them. So uh, it's they won't edit for you. You have to pay for it. So it really forces you to take a look at what you're writing and how you're writing it. Now, once you become, you know, good at it or you think you know what you're doing, then go to Bowker.com and you can buy ISBNs one at a time. You know, if you're a starving student or something or just can't afford it, it's going to be about $150, but you can also buy 10 of them for $250. You have to upload the cover of your book, the inside of your book. You have to say how you want it sold, what rights that you have. You really want to copyright it. Each book that I write, I copyright it and send it to the Library of Congress. That's an additional cost. So take it just one step at a time. Who knows? Your book might end up an Oscar-winning movie. <laughs> right. Well, did you set goals uh, before you began your research, or you just went for it? <laughs> no, I knew I wanted what I wanted to say, and I already had it all categorized, but to put it out there, I was just laboring over it. And I mean I have a master's in this, so I should know, but it was so it was personal, so I was laboring over it until I decided to write it first person. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do that till like I said, after I just got a little incensed about the man had to speak differently than what he was raised to speak. He must have been a coach a coachman or somebody who worked in the house for her to for him to speak that well. Mhm. Or like with Peter, you know, it might have said, learn how they speak so if you can slip away from here, you won't get caught. So, I mean, we're talking about your research strategy, but back Mm -hmm. to uh, several things. First of all, what are the business implications of becoming a a self-publisher? Well, I think it's very good now because it used to be you were at the mercy of a publishing company. They'll tell you now, if your book is doing well, they will come and make you an offer you simply cannot refuse. And they are always on the look for it rather than going through an agent or some other people. You can get an agent once they contact you, but they're looking for people who are putting out all the expense at first. And then they come in and say, let us help you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, because you could use the help beforehand, but if you're really... Like you say, have your goals set. I quit a full-time job in uh, 2004, and I told my employer, I just cannot stay here because I have to get this done. And I went to part-time work. I went to temp work and everything so I could get it done. And where I work at now, my employer doesn't bother me in the least bit about my hours or anything else because she knows what my heart is and where my heart is. Yes, I will help them. She's a wonderful person. But my heart is glass tree books. Right. Now, uh, last week, uh, Anita Paul mentioned uh, your dream team, your publishing team. Did you have a group of people working with you? You, Did you have an editor or folks who really looked at your work, or did you self-edit? No, I did the editing, but my sister is the final editor. And I tell you, there are times we are ready to just yank each other's hair out. But she keeps me focused enough to where I'm not all over the place. And mm-hmm. she wants it written in a specific way. She was um, she just retired from being a probation officer. So she had to do a lot of court reporting and be very clear uh, very exacting and, you know, so she knows what it is you're trying to say 
So don't bring her any junk. <laughs> and it's the same way for me. I know what she's trying to say, so I'm her editor. But mm-hmm. as far as a team, no. I, you know, sometimes you know when not to do that because there's yeah. so much drama and everything else. You don't want that in your work because it will now, flow I'm, off into your work. Right. Now, there's another question coming out of the chat, and I think you and I talked about this earlier. How much of the narration is fictionalized? Uh, probably about 10%. Mm-hmm. Honestly, about 10%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then another question is, when are you going to Ireland? Oh, that'll be coming up soon. There's another cousin. She, uh, We haven't met. A lot of these cousins, I haven't met them, but she's also a descendant of the um, slave owner, and we exchanged information, things she didn't have and things I didn't have, and she got married and moved to Ireland. So we, we're always on Facebook you know, chatting it up, and she's probably listening or she'll be listening whenever it's morning in Ireland and uh, probably set up a time uh, probably next year, within the next two years, I'd say, that's when I'm going to go. But I I really want to focus, too, about putting this book out as a movie. I'm just putting it out there, and uh, I've approached the agent about uh, this lady I know who's an actress. She's from Sacramento, and I think she would make a great Mama Millie. (laughs) <laughs> mhm. And and one thing about about your book is that you have uh topics for research and discussion as part mm-hmm. of this book. Uh right. and was this like a, a teacher guide if anyone would get the book and wanted to uh have discussions with those who would be reading it? Yes, not only with those who would be reading it, but also with families. I want them to sit down and talk about it. I taught um, genealogy to uh, some children at a school that I was an administrator at. And um, we had them to put together their own little genealogy books and talk about it. You know, how long do you think it took uh, for the slaves to walk from Virginia to Natchez? Um, uh, Discover some of the old trails and routes between Georgia and Mississippi. There's one called the Three Chop Trail or something that's extinct now, but I was so grateful to run across it. Uh, how did the uh, gold rush impact Georgia in 1828 as well as California in 1849? Talk about those things. I always try and, cr- and include a little curriculum with uh, everything that I write because, like I said, mm-hmm. I write for children. I, I want them to think about it and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, get a timeline in history book. Read some of the WPA narratives. You know, the, and their parents, they might not have written it either or read about it either, so... You know, as a family, and especially right. for African-American families, let's sit down and talk about it. What uh-huh. can we find out about our family? What did Grandma tell you or what did Grandpa tell you that your own parents didn't tell you or yeah. your own parents didn't believe? Uh-huh. So, you know, where you could discuss it without drama and stuff and saying, oh, Daddy didn't know what he was talking about. My sister doesn't know what she was talking about. It happened this way. Sit down and talk about it. Write out right. all the little stories. And as it turned out, um, these were middle schoolers, well, sixth to eighth grade, and, oh, my God, some of the stories that came out of that class, we laughed, we laughed, we laughed, because they call themselves telling secrets. Grandpa used to pull the hair out of his beard when he was mad at Grandma. (laughs) But as Mm -hmm. it turned out, a couple of them, their grandparents died, and they told their mom, I want to help you write the obituary. We have to name names. Don't just say 12 brothers and 12 sisters. They might be looking for us in 100 years. And one um, was a pastor's wife, and she got up when her father died, and she gave the family history. 
Well, everybody stops crying when you do that, and they're listening, and they're writing it down. So mm-hmm. that's what I do. Anytime the older relatives die, I go and give the family history at the funeral. They were the son of, they were the grandson of, the slave of so-and-so. I want them to know. Yes. Well, your book, your book, uh, a Mulatto Slave, The Events in the Life of Peter Hunt from 1844 to 1915 certainly is a, a, a great guide. But there's one question. Now, what yes. was your biggest surprise so far in any of your research? Oh, gee, there were so many. Not, I wouldn't say surprises, just thrills. I mean, I was thrilled and chilled every time I turned something over. You know, you turn a rock over and there's something that's like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I think people would hate to see me coming. I was like, look what I found, look what I found. They're like, oh, God, here she goes. But let there be a family reunion. They want to know everything. <laughs> Lay it out. Let's see it. Let's touch it. Let's feel it. Tell us the story. <laughs> Yeah, but one thing you did do, and this is one of the recommendations that came out of last week's uh, discussion, you mm-hmm. did focus on an individual, and you developed yes. that story about that mm-hmm. individual. You didn't try to put in everything, mm-hmm. but you did put a lot in here because I see all I of did. these family. You have these wonderful family <laughs> pictures, which is which is great. So we're going to close out. Any parting words before we move on? (laughs) I just want to tell everybody, you really should know about your ancestors. They were wonderful. They did whatever they could to get you here. Find out about them. There are stories. There are pictures. There are people online who have information for you. I've never met half of the people who sent me uh, information. And I just met you, Bernice, last week. We've been talking for several months. That's right. We met at the National Archives. That's right. Be nice and be kind. Don't get the information and tell them off. You know, just don't go out there trying to get, get, get without giving. That's right. You know. So you're, that's you're what so a genealogist right. does. You're so right. Well, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed reading your book. I like the way you put it together. And, and it, it's an inspiration uh, thank for you. others uh, who, who have to write that book, including Bernice Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, let me just tell you, I'm really excited about the February lineup. And, you know, I say this every single month, don't I? <laughs> Well, here I am again talking about what's going to happen in the month of uh, February. That's Black History Month. Well, oh, so we're going to kick off, yes, with with uh, Gwendolyn Olson. Gwen has been on the show before. She tells wonderful stories. And this story that she's going to share with us is about the car Kelso family of Alexandria, Louisiana. Now, in keeping with the vision of researching and sharing what she considers hidden information and stories about communities of South Louisiana and the golf course, she's going to offer us stories of people and places outside of New Orleans. And she's going to tell us these stories based upon her research. So I'm really excited about that. Then on February 14th, we're going to have Deborah Abbott. Now, Deborah is going to talk about cluster genealogy. Cluster genealogy may hold the clue. So do your roots, you know, 
need untangling? If so, try stepping out on a limb and doing some cluster genealogy by researching family history through extended family members, neighbors, and the community that may really answer the questions and provide information about your own ancestors that you have not been able to find. And then I'm really excited on February the 21st, we're going to have Carla Peterson. And she is going to discuss her book, Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City. Fascinating book. And then I'm going to have a special show. It's not going to be on Thursday. It's actually going to be on a Monday at 3 o'clock, February the 25th. And we're going to have registered patent agent, Patricia Carter Sluby, and she's going to discuss the plight of invented slaves during the antebellum and Civil War eras. And she's going to talk about the invented spirit and African American patented ingenuity. And she has written a book about that. So I hope everyone will tune in for all of the shows in February. They were going to be really exciting, and I know you're going to walk away learning something. So I'd like to just say to everyone, thank you so much for joining me tonight, Denise, and I want everyone else to remember, just as Denise has pointed out, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through what? Oral history, family records, Research at the National Archives and beyond. And and let's keep this conversation going on Facebook and AfroGenius.com. Also, remember, everyone, to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell. So thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, President of BB's Genealogy and Educational Services, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. Now I want you all to remember all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and you can also find them on iTunes. So good night, everyone, and I look forward to you joining me next next Thursday. Good night. Good night. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.